Let's get into the Word. So if you have a Bible with you, would you please turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, please feel free to borrow one from these black chair pockets or the ends of the side aisles. Um, If you don't own a Bible, please feel free to keep that one. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. And if um, if you're using one of the paperback Bibles, the black ones, that's on page 690. In the gold Bibles, it's page 473. We're continuing through the Sermon on the Mount. It's a big milestone. We hit another chapter. We've been in chapter 5 for a while, and now chapter 6 begins uh, so I'm going to follow. I'm going to read this, and if you would follow along with me as I do, it should be on the screen behind me as well. Matthew chapter six, beginning in verse one, Jesus speaking. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy. Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others." Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now skip down to verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast... Anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a gift to have your words here in front of us. To know what you said, to know what you are saying to us. And so we, we just want to say to you, we're all ears. Lord, we want to hear from you. We want you to speak. We want you to speak. Speak to our hearts. Speak to our minds. Please make us what you want us to be. We pray in your name. Amen. When I was in fifth grade, I was on a team with other kids from my school in a creative problem-solving competition for schools in our region. And so for this, for this uh, competition, we had, to, uh, we had to create some self-driving vehicles that would accomplish certain tasks. So for example, they gave us this task. They said, as part of your project, you have to have a vehicle pop a balloon. It has to travel a certain distance and pop a balloon. And and around these tasks, they wanted us to create a story, a skit. We had to, uh, we had to write a story into which these, these uh, tasks would fit. And so we had to create a story that we could all act out and speak out that would involve, for some reason, a car driving across the distance and popping a balloon. And so we, 
it was a big job. We met weekly for months. Uh, we, we, just, we, we really poured ourselves into it. We're 10-year-olds, so as much as 10-year-olds can. And the day of the competition, we went out. We did our best. You know, we, we did the best that we could. We, we did our, our competition, our, our skit. And when we went to check the posted scores, we found that we had finished in dead last. And if, if memory serves, thank you for your sympathy. If memory serves, you won't feel so good about it in a second. If memory serves, we actually had a negative score. And when we sought to understand how this could have happened, we discovered that one of the key rules of the competition was that we were not supposed to speak. It was a nonverbal competition. And we had created this whole skit, you know, where everybody's talking. And, um, and so I guess, I guess the, the, the total points we'd accrued otherwise was actually less than just the penalty for speaking, and that's how we ended up with a negative score. It was very embarrassing. In the passage we're going to look at today, Jesus tells us that there's a way of living the Christian life, a way of doing what Christians are called to do, that in the final analysis is awarded no points. It might look right, people might admire your life, you might be held up as a model Christian, people might talk about how great you are on Facebook, you might have your picture in the paper, and yet all of it might be for nothing. And if that doesn't perk you up a little bit, in your chair, I don't know what will. I don't want my life to count for nothing. I want to hear what Jesus has to say. And so in this passage, this section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see a portrait of devotion, the peril of devotion, and the payoff of devotion. And I apologize for the alliteration. Sometimes I cannot help myself. Portrait, peril, payoff. So first, a portrait of devotion, generosity, intimacy, and self-discipline. So Jesus announces the theme of this part of the Sermon on the Mount in verse 1. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So there's, there's a life that receives a reward from our Father in heaven, and there's a life that doesn't. And Jesus doesn't say that the life that doesn't get God's reward is well done. He doesn't say that that's a life of unrighteousness. He says the life that goes unrewarded is one in which we practice righteousness in order to be seen by people. And then he gives us three examples. He gives us the example of giving to the poor in verses 2 to 4, the example of praying in verses 5 to 6, and the example of fasting in verses 16 to 17. And so most commentators on this passage, most Bible experts who've studied this passage, think that the reason he picks these three areas of life is because together they paint a beautiful picture a balanced portrait of a life devoted to God. They, ca- they cover the three kind of areas of our life. They, our relationship to others, our relationship to God, and our relationship to ourself. And the relationship toward others, Jesus says, should be one of sacrificial generosity. He talks about giving to the needy. And remember that this is a time before government assistance, before welfare, before needs assessment. The way Jewish communities cared for the poor was that everybody had, who had more than they needed gave until everybody had enough. So God said in the law, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, he said, there shall be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. So one of the marks of his people is that everybody has enough. Nobody goes without. And this is how, this is how it happens. He says, if among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart, or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. So caring for the poor was 
everybody's responsibility. They didn't, it wasn't like winner take all, survival of the fittest, like, um, well, I was just, I worked harder and I was more successful, so, you know, tough on you. It was, we're all in this together. What, what God has given us, he's given us for everybody, so they gave freely. And Jesus assumes that will continue among his people. He says in verse 3, but when you give to the needy, he assumes when you follow me, this is going to happen. You're going to be giving to the needy. So Christians should be marked by this generous life, not just, not just tithing at church, but, um, but giving to like nonprofits like Cayman's Ark and the Cancer Society and Hospice Care, the Crisis Center. We should, we should see the needs in our community groups, the needs in our church, the needs of people on our street, and, and think, what can I do about that? How can I move into that need. If I have more than I need, how can I give towards that? We should feel a personal responsibility for making sure everybody is provided for. So our relationship toward others is one of generosity. And Jesus says that our relationship toward God is one of intimacy. He talks about prayer. He says devotion to God isn't, it's not just doing right by others, but it's engaging personally, intimately with the God who made the universe, worshiping him, confessing to him, bringing to him our burdens and our cares and our need. Today we'd include, you know, they didn't have a printing press. They had like maybe one copy of the law in, in their synagogue. We all have personal Bibles, or we at least can. So we'd include this, this meet, getting along with God, reading his word, praying to him, having a personal relationship with him. That's part of our devotion to God. And our devotion to God also includes how we relate to ourselves, which he describes here as including fasting. So fasting is a way of denying ourselves something material in order to pursue something spiritual. It's a way of saying to God, even more than I need food, I need you. I need your mercy because I've sinned. I need your direction because I don't know what to do. I need, I need your help because I can't make happen what needs to happen. It's a way of, of disciplining ourselves, of exercising self-control. We're not controlled by our desires. We're not controlled by our appetites. We can say no to ourselves in order to say yes to God. So these are the rhythms of Jewish life, and Jesus assumes they will continue among his followers, that we'll be people of generosity towards others, intimacy with him, discipline toward ourselves. It's a beautiful life, but Jesus says that it's all for nothing if it's all for yourself. And that, secondly, is the peril of devotion living to please people. He says it's possible to practice our righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And he gives us this sketch of a life lived that way. And so look at verse 2. He says, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, that they may be praised by others. Now, we don't know if the Pharisees literally had trumpets that they would have play to kind of announce that they were coming to give to the needy, or if it was just sort of like what we would call tooting their own horn, if they were just kind of making sure everybody's watching, kind of like a generosity happening over here. We don't know exactly how they did it, but we know that they were doing it to get attention. Whatever they did, they did it to get the praise of people. And Jesus says they do it for praise, and praise is all the reward they're going to get. They've received their reward. In verse 5, he says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So they love to pray. They love it. They can't get enough of it. They can't even make it to the temple. They love to pray so much, they just stop right on the street corner and do it in front of everybody. They love to pray where they can be seen and heard, where people can think, 
What wonderful prayers, what eloquence, what passion, what love for God. And Jesus says, those good thoughts about them are all the reward they're going to get. And in verse 16, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. Now fasting is a tricky one to show off because it's not something you do, it's something you don't do, right? It's not eating. So how do you show people that you're fasting so you can get their good approval? Well, you put on a long face, you look, you know, kind of frumpy, and you just kind of slunk, slink in, and people say, well, what's wrong? Is everything okay? No, I'm fine. I'm just, I'm just hungry. I'm, I'm fasting. And, and they think, oh, how spiritual. What, it's, like a, it's like a monk in our midst. And Jesus says, that's all the reward you're going to get, is those good opinions of people. Now, we all know how the wrong motive just hollows out a seemingly loving act, right? So imagine your boss surprises your team with an outing. You go out for a nice lunch together. Maybe you go bowling or mini golf. You get the rest of the afternoon off, and you think, wow, she really appreciates us. And then you see, you get on Facebook and see that she has meticulously documented the afternoon on the company's Facebook page to advertise what a great boss she is. Look how great it is to work for me. And you think, oh, that wasn't for us. That was for you. Or if your spouse surprises you for your anniversary, you get dinner out, a night at a hotel, morning at the spa, but then he advertises it to everybody just to show what a great husband he is. And that, that just comes across as hollow. It takes all the meaning out right? The word hypocrite, which Jesus uses here, it it comes from the Greek theater. It's the word for actor. It's the word for someone who wears a mask. That's what a hypocrite is. Hypocrisy means cultivating an appearance for the applause of your audience. The peril of devotion to God is that we can stop pursuing this beautiful life of generosity and intimacy and self-discipline just to please our Heavenly Father, and we just begin doing it for an audience. We begin doing it for other people. We do it to craft a mask, a persona, a public image that will get admiration and applause. So I, I began following Jesus in university. And before that, before I trusted in Jesus, my life was entirely consumed by the pursuit of academic success. If I was top of my class, if I was the best at what I was doing, then it felt like I was valuable, I felt like my life had purpose, and if I felt short of that, I felt like I had nothing. And then I trusted Christ, I began reading the Bible and praying, and what I realized was some of of the things that I've been doing over here in academics translated over. So, like I was good at school, I was good at studying, so I was learning about the Bible really fast. I, I could read it and understand it, and I could, you know, I began to be kind of like the Bible answer people. People would, you know, I'd been the Christian for like six months, and people would call me and be like, what does this thing mean? And I'd be like, oh, yes, very tricky. Three opinions. And like, so, so like that kind of translated over, and, you know, my academic discipline translated over too. And so for me, it was no, like, it was not a problem at all to immediately begin reading the Bible and praying every day. And so I began to get this reputation um, for, for being, like, people would think, well, look how much, like, he knows the Bible so well. He, he must really love God. I, be, I began to get this reputation of having a maturity well beyond what I deserved. So I, I had just taken my need to achieve and be admired in the area of academics and just brought it wholesale right into Christianity. I, was, I had not stopped living for the approval of people. I was just seeking to impress them a different way. 
And, and so I was still a hypocrite. And I know, I know it's not just me, right? We, we always have one eye, maybe, maybe both eyes, on how am I coming across? How, how's this prayer sounding? Am I, am I getting some mm-hmm's and amen's? We're, we're hesitant to speak up at community group because we, we want people to think we know everything. We don't want to be wrong. Why do we care so much what people think? Well, the Bible speaks extensively about this problem of living to please people because it's so prevalent. It's what the Bible calls the fear of man, which contrasts with the fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom. We could spend a sermon series looking at it closely, but there are two especially pressing answers to the question, why, why do we live to please people? And the first is that the nature of sin, the nature of our fallen hearts, is to put ourselves in the place of God. We don't want to serve him We don't want to live for his praise and glory. We want to be on the throne of our lives. We want to do what we want to do. Without even consciously thinking it, we begin to assume that the way the world ought to work is for everybody to think we are awesome, that we are important, that we're great, that we want people to speak well of us, even when we're not around, and we, be, we think, well, if, if that's not happening, then I need to right this ship here. I need, to, I need to remind everybody how amazing I am, how great I am, just so, just so things can get back to the way that they should be. We find subtle ways of showing off without appearing to show off. We don't want to look like a show-off, but we just want to subtly remind people that we are amazing. That's one reason. And another is that we don't really believe in God's approval of us and his acceptance of us. If we were really secure in God's love and approval and acceptance, we wouldn't, it wouldn't matter what anyone else thinks. But because we, we doubt it, we doubt it just enough that we decide to hedge our bets. So we want to serve God, but we also don't want to lose the good approval of people, too. We want to kind of diversify our investments and just have everybody think that we're great. And so we try to live for God in a way that also will get the applause of people. But Jesus says, no. These two ways of living are mutually exclusive. If you live for the reward of applause, you will have no reward from your Father. You can't please both audiences. And I think Jesus' critique really resonates today because we live in what some people have called the age of authenticity. We're repulsed by hypocrisy. We want people to be authentic. We want people to be real. We, we want them to, to, to be themselves, to stop pretending and, and this, this thing has made people really suspicious of Christianity, right? Maybe that's you. Maybe that's your experience. Maybe you grew up in, in the church or you grew up in a religious school and you could tell that it was all just a show. There was nothing behind it. And, and so even as a child, you could tell that it wasn't real. It was done for applause. And you thought, oh, religion is just one more kind of hypocrisy. It's just, it's just people getting attention for themselves. So maybe it's helpful for you to see that what turned you off about Christianity actually is exactly what Jesus criticizes here. He wants authenticity too. But we also need to see that this isn't a problem just for some people. Are we living authentic lives, really? I mean, one of the defining realities of our time is social media. And what is social media except our projection to the world of the face we want them to see, of the life we want them to think that we have. It's just one more mask. The photos we we post are the ones that make our life look most amazing, that make our family look just deliriously happy. We want people to envy us. We don't post on Facebook our selfish thoughts or our hurtful words. We share our problems, maybe, but in such a way to get sympathy or to make people think how, how well we're dealing with them. Even the the stuff we post about our kids, we hope, will subtly reflect well on us. And we all do it. 
It becomes instinctive. We, we do something good or we get affirmation at work or our kids say something kind to us and we just reach for our phone because we want our audience to know. And we do this with our life of devotion. Our, our quiet time feels incomplete if we don't Instagram the Bible and the coffee together. Right? We share Bible verses not to encourage others but to get likes and to seem spiritual. Now, I don't want to focus too much on behaviors. It's not like those things are wrong. That's not where Jesus focuses. He doesn't focus on behaviors. He focuses on the heart. The question is, where is your heart? Is your, is your heart, is your life focused on actually becoming something or just on seeming to be something? In Cayman, there are so many opportunities. I mean, just to use the example of giving, right? There are so many opportunities in Cayman to make a show of giving, to have your name appear prominently on a donor list or to be at all the right galas and behind all the right causes and and to be doing it not to help but just for praise, just to be seen as a generous person. And, And there are temptations, let's not kid ourselves, right here at church, right? There are temptations to put on a certain expression while we sing, you know, eyes closed, kind of gentle smile, maybe hands half raised. And I'm not, I'm not criticizing raising your hands. I'm saying, what is behind it? What is your heart? We, we can make a show of what we put in the offering basket. We can, you know, when we're talking before and after the service, we can pretend to have a life much more put together than we do. Now, no one will ever truly know what motivates what you do. No one here. But God knows. God knows your heart. Nothing is hidden from him. And God says that even the best deeds, if done for yourself, have no reward from your Father in heaven. There's no one that doesn't touch, no one who isn't to some degree tempted to trade real growth in godliness, which is messy and hard and takes vulnerability to others, to trade that in for an image, a picture, a mask. We're all tempted to stop loving God and start using God to love ourselves. And Jesus says, beware. Watch yourself. But he doesn't just warn us. He also lays out another way to live, one that offers eternal reward. So let's see, finally, the payoff of devotion, reward from the audience of one. Jesus says there's a way to live that's aimed at pleasing God alone. And here's how he describes it. Look at verse 3. But when you give to the needy, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. So instead of sounding a trumpet so everyone knows, Jesus says, when you give, don't even tell yourself about it. Don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give, and then don't pat yourself on the back. Just forget about it. Or verse 6, he says, But when you pray... Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. So instead of praying on the street corner where everyone can see you, he says, go into the inner room of your house where there are no windows. Pull the door behind you shut so no one can see you. And and pray there. Pray to God alone. Or verse 17. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you fast, don't put on a face. Do your normal routine. Take a normal shower. Put on your normal clothes. Put on your normal makeup. Do what you would do any other day so that no one can see that anything is different. Keep it a secret between you and God. 
Now, Jesus is exaggerating here a little bit to show the contrast, right? He's, he's not saying that everything has to be an absolute secret in order to have value. He's not saying that you have to wear ski masks on Sunday morning so no one sees who's putting money in the plate, right? He's not, he's not saying that if you're reading your Bible on the beach or in a coffee shop and someone walks by, you have to scramble to kind of cover it up so no one knows that it's the Bible. He's talking about motivation. When you're doing good, Who are you doing it for? Our life of devotion to God should be like an iceberg. It should be mostly hidden. We can't hide it entirely, and we shouldn't try. Because Jesus, remember earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, said, Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's good for our life of devotion to God to be seen, but it's not good if we do it to be seen. Our devotion to God should be done out of love for him, to please him alone. It should be mostly invisible to the people around us. The alternative, and I don't, this is a good brain puzzler. What's the opposite of an iceberg? I think, what's the opposite of an iceberg? Here's what I came up with. The alternative is to have a life of devotion that's like a balloon, where it's entirely visible, but it's empty inside. There's nothing to it. Can you live a life where the best things you do are known only to God? where most of your generosity and intimacy with him, the things you go without in order to seek him and serve him, where no one knows those things but him. Can you do all these things and tell no one? That will test whether we're seeking the reward that comes from people, applause and praise, or the reward that he gives. And what is the reward he gives? It's not material things, certainly. We we recoil from teaching that makes God a means to health and wealth. But what is the reward? At the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells a couple parables about the kingdom of heaven. And so in in the first parable, the first parable, he he says that the kingdom of heaven is like this. He says, imagine 10 women who are waiting for a wedding party. Okay, they're waiting for the the groom to come so they can accompany him to the party. And he's delayed. He he comes late. Five of the women are ready. They, They got enough oil for their lamps so that they'd be ready when he came, but five of them weren't ready. They, they weren't prepared. They didn't, they didn't think ahead, and they didn't have enough oil, so they had to go out and buy oil, and while they were gone, the bridegroom came, they went to the party, and the people who weren't ready for him missed it. And in the second parable, which comes right after that, he says that the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like a man going to a far country and entrusting his property to his servants. And when he comes back, He rewards them based on what they did with what he gave them. So those faithful with a little are entrusted with much, and he tells them, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. So what was the reward for those who were ready and faithful? It was the presence and approval of the one they were waiting for, the one they were serving. Their reward is the wedding feast with the bridegroom. It's entering into the joy of your master. The reward God offers is more of himself, knowing him more deeply, enjoying him more fully, being entrusted with more of his work. That's why we live to please God. We don't, live, we, don't, we don't serve God, live to please God, so that he'll give us something. We don't want something from God. We want to get more of God himself, more of experiencing greater closeness with him, and with him now, but especially more of him in eternity, in the age to come, after Jesus comes back. Now, we have to take seriously the warning of this passage. There is a way to live the Christian life that receives no reward. It's possible to look like a Christian, 
to give to the poor, to pray, and to fast, and to have it all just be a mask, a performance for people. And Jesus says that person will come to the end of his or her life and have no reward from God. They'll be like the people in the parables who miss the wedding feast, the people who, um, who don't enter into the joy of their master. But at the same time, our confidence can't be in ourselves, that if we, if we give secretly enough, if we pray secretly enough, if we do enough for God, he'll accept us, because we can never do enough for God. Our confidence comes from knowing that God in love sent someone to do it for us. Jesus came into the world not just to tell us the right way to live, but to live the right way for us because we never could. There was never even one one-hundredth of a second when Jesus was doing what he was doing to get a little attention, to get a little praise, to get someone to think better of him. Never once. At every moment of every day of his entire life, every thought, every action was worship to his Father in heaven. If anyone deserved eternal reward, it was Jesus. But what did he do? He went to the cross to take the penalty for our selfishness, to suffer for every time we prayed to get someone to admire us, every time we gave to get praise, every time we used God to get attention for ourselves. Jesus died for that. And to everyone who trusts him, Jesus offers forgiveness of all of our sins, all of our selfishness, and power to live, not for people, but for our Father in heaven alone. Jesus can make us like this. And then our life becomes this gift, this, this present that we offer to God alone in response, not to get salvation from him, but in response to his love and his salvation. Listen, whomever you live to please will be the source of your reward. If you live to please people, their pleasure will be all you get. That's all your reward. It'll be hollow and fleeting and utterly unsatisfying. But if you trust in Jesus and through him seek God, if you live to please the one who loved you when you only loved yourself and gave his son for you, if you live to please him, you will have his presence and his praise and ever-increasing, all-satisfying joy. Live for the audience of one. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that when you challenge us, it's not to condemn, it's not to beat down, it's to draw us closer to you. And at times it feels to us just hopeless that we could ever live just to please you, that we wouldn't care what people think of us, that we wouldn't live to get their attention. God, it feels almost instinctive to us to keep an eye on how we're coming across. And we need you. Thank you, Jesus, that you died on the cross for all of that, for every time we lived for people rather than God, that you paid the penalty, you took the punishment, you died for us. And we need your forgiveness, but more than that, we need your spirit to give us such love for this Father who saved us, such love for the Father who sent you, that we would live for him alone, that our life would be a sacrifice, a living sacrifice, an offering to him, that in secret, where no one can see, 
we would live just for him to love the Father who first loved us. And so, Father, send your spirit. Make us people like this. And let our light so shine that you receive praise, not us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.